Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 322. Athelred, we're absolutely forked. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Stephanie, Charles, and Richard for signing up already. Elderman Elfridge of Hampshire was out, and Elderman Athelweird the Chronicler was in. He would now be the king's chief counselor, and he would be supported by his son, Athelmar, as well as the king's uncle, High Reef Ordwolf of Devon, and the king's mother, Elfthrith, the Dowager Queen. And as for the king's old council, well, with the exception of Elfrich, who appears to have been too big to fail, they were all dead. It was the most hostile of hostile takeovers. When Elfrich had taken power years earlier, we saw his extended family flexing their newfound power and seizing incredible amounts of wealth. But now that there's been a regime change, it was Athelweird and his family's turn to flex. The old branches of the royal dynasty were back in power. But they weren't alone. A new family was crashing the reunion. The charters start mentioning Wolfrich Spot, his brother Elfhelm, and his son, Wolfhea. And this little gang had been present in court for about a decade. But as soon as Athelweird's faction took power, all of a sudden those three rose significantly in prominence. You see, the witness list of the charters can be read as a courtly pecking order. And Wolfrich and his family had just rode the social elevator all the way to the top floor. But why? Well, it turns out that requires a bit of fun detective work, so let's work this out together. Here's what we know of them. Way back in the early 10th century, there was a very powerful Mercian land magnate named Wolf Siga the Black. Now, his name is listed high in the documents, and he moved freely in the king's court. And from what we can tell, he was a socially, and quite possibly also militarily, influential figure. But he wasn't an elderman. And that's likely because during this time, the House of Wessex was trying to make sure that Mercia remained subordinate. And thus, they were handing Mercian titles to West Saxon nobles. And Wolf Sigurd the Black was Mercian. But even though he wasn't an elderman, he was still highly ranked. And after he died, we see his lands being run by a lady named Wolfrun. And based on the way the Anglo-Saxons handled dynastic naming, especially up in Mercia, and also based on the fact that she had his lands, and based on the fact that she was clearly a high-ranked lady, many suspect that Wolfrun was the daughter of Wolf Siga the Black. And here's how important she was. Lady Wolfrun was specifically mentioned in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. That's incredibly rare for Anglo-Saxon women. So it tells us that she must have been a major figure in Mercian politics, and likely just in English politics in general. We also know that she had an eventful life. In 943, Lady Wolfrun was actually captured by the Danes when they raided the old Mercian capital of Tamworth. But, unfortunately, we don't know much more than that. Only that she later appears in the records with two sons, Wolfrich Spot and Elfhelm. And Wolfrich's nickname, Spot, might refer to the fact that he had a mark on his face. But, because Old English had a lot of homonyms, it might also just mean that he was short or fat. However, there's another wrinkle to Wolfrich's spot, because that nickname 
like a lot of nicknames from this period, doesn't actually appear in the record for a couple centuries. So it's entirely possible that no one during his lifetime ever called him Wolfrich Spot. And so there's no way to be sure that it had anything to do with his appearance. However, because history has come to know him as Wolfrich Spot, that's what we're going to be calling him. But here's the important part. While that nickname doesn't appear in the contemporary records, his parentage does. He's referred to as Wolfrich, son of Wolfrun. So his lineage was being traced through his mother, not his father. And so was his brothers, Alfhelm. In fact, we don't know who their father is. And the implication here is that at best, their father was low-ranked and not worthy of note. And at worst, Wolfrich and Elfhelm were conceived during Wolfren's capture by the Danes. We probably will never know. But what we can be relatively certain of here is that these two boys were part of a powerful Mercian dynasty that could be traced through their mother. And as you know, Mercian dynasties trace their mother's side just as much, if not more so, than their father's side when they're trying to figure out who has the right to rule. So let's fast forward to the late 10th century, where we're seeing this highly ranked Mercian dynasty suddenly rising in prominence in the West Saxon-dominated court. And now we know it's the family of Wolfrun. And that leaves us with a question of why is this happening? Well, personally, I think it's notable that King Athelred and his court had spent the better part of the last decade avoiding the Midlands and the North like the plague. So rather than making friends in these regions, Athelred and his inner circle of counselors led by Elfrich had been doing things like exiling the Eldermen of Mercia. So this sudden prominence of an important Mercian family might have been some form of apology or assurance for Mercia now that the new council was being put in place. It's also possible that Wolfrich Spot and his family had been part of a political coup that made the return of Athelred's old counselors possible. And this was a payment for that service. I don't know. But something seems to have happened here. And that feeling gets reinforced when the documents start recording fabulous cash and prizes getting rained down upon Wolfrich Spot and his family once the new faction led by Elderman Athelweird seized control. We see Elfhelm, the younger son of Wolfrun, getting granted the vacant eldermancy of Northumbria. And as for Wolfrich, son of Wolfrun, well, the documentation of his life is spotty. But based on how he's spoken about in other records, including charters related to his family's support of Burton Abbey in Staffordshire, and also how he's referred to as ruling over Mercia, not to mention the fact that he's the eldest son of Wolfrun and her younger son was the elderman of Northumbria now. Well, based on all of that, it appears that he was given dominion over his family's home shire, Mercia, and became, at the very least, the de facto elderman of Mercia, or possibly even being named as such. Even his son, Wolf Hea, was rising in prominence. And they weren't done yet. They were joined by a man named Wolf Giet, and based on his name, it's thought that he might have been an extended family member. And Wolfgang was doing well, but he wasn't given lands. At least, not directly. You might remember last episode when Elfgar, he was the son of Elderman Elfrich, was blinded as part of the final power struggle between the royal councils. And a short time later, he died of his wounds, leaving a wife and quite a lot of land behind. Well, those lands remained with his widow. That is, until she remarried. And so Wolfgang 
was given Elfgar's wife in marriage, and thus he acquired Elfgar's lands. And presumably, Wolfgate was pretty happy about that. We don't know if his new wife was, nor those who were living on the new lands. Not that anyone with the power to do anything was particularly concerned with a young widow's happiness, let alone a few villages of peasants. Because as I said last episode, the corruption that was sitting at the heart of Anglo-Saxon governance had become a cultural problem. This was no longer a matter of one or two individuals. And the fall of Elfrich and his family didn't do anything to improve the conditions. By failing to address the way things were being run, and instead just focusing on who happened to be running them, the Witan was simply trading one faction for another. And the rot that had infected the core of the kingdom continued to eat away at the foundations. And this dodgy marriage was just one more sign of that. And the king and his council, though probably just the council, weren't done yet. The Eldermen of Essex had also been sitting vacant ever since Elderman Burtonoth had heroically sacrificed himself to his own sense of honor. And in his place, a man named Leofsiga was installed as the new Elderman of Essex. And to be honest, I have no earthly idea who he was or where he came from. So I can't tell you if this was also part of a political consolidation of power. Or maybe it was just next in line. I genuinely don't know why he got the job. But one thing I can be sure of is that based on other records, he doesn't appear to have been part of the king's inner circle. Nor did the king appear to feel any sort of personal loyalty towards him. But beyond that, I really don't know where this guy came from. But he was part of this shuffling of the power structure that was going on in this period. And there's something else that might have happened at around this point. According to John of Worcester, King Athelred's first wife wasn't Elf Gifu, daughter of Thored of Northumbria. It was apparently some other unnamed woman. And instead, John of Worcester claims that at around this point, King Athelred's first wife either died or was set aside, and that this was the point where he was married off to Elf Gifu. Now, it's important to note that John of Worcester was the only one to record the events in this order, which does make me suspicious. But there were a ton of political power plays being made right at this moment. And the truth is, the crown really needed to do something to shore up support of Northumbria. After all, they've been dealing with years and years of neglect, not to mention that whole treason thing that was carried out by the king's former chief counselor. A counselor who was still very much alive and still an elderman, I might add. So taking the regent's top daughter and making her a queen might have gone a long way towards soothing those sore feelings. So it is possible, but it's also impossible to actually know for certain. But one thing we are sure of is that 994 was a busy year for the king's new council. But they weren't the only ones burning that midnight oil. King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark and Norway and his vassal, the battle-hardened Olaf Tryggvason, had been keeping themselves occupied and were now looking to make a move. But their alliance was a tenuous one. Olaf was Norse and King Swain Forkbeard was Danish. And while Swain had established himself as king of the Norse and Olaf was technically a vassal of his, Scandinavian kings had long had trouble in maintaining their hold over other kingdoms. So I can imagine that Swain was keeping a wary eye on Olaf as they worked. But work they did. And while the English court was occupied with divvying out territories to their favorite sycophants, 
And while the faction found new creative ways to strip Elfrich's allies of as much power as possible, King Swain Forkbeard and Olaf Trigveson have been gathering ships. A lot of ships. A metric ton of ships. In the end, they had a combined fleet of 94 ships in total. And they'd also been arranging warriors to man those ships. Likely in excess of 2,000 warriors. And what they were preparing was something new. Because King Swain Forkbeard wasn't like Halfdan or Guthrum. In fact, he was unlike anything that Alfred the Great or his brothers had dealt with. The raiders of the 9th century were ostensibly looking for lands to settle. That's why they kept on sharing out lands to their followers. It's why families and farmers followed closely behind the armies. But King Swain Forkbeard didn't want land. He already had plenty of that. What he wanted was wealth. He wanted money, which he could then use to advance his ambitions back home in Scandinavia. England had dealt with Scandinavian kings in the past, and it had dealt with Viking fleets. But this was new. This was a Viking king. And of course, he was coming straight for England. Because at this point in history, England was one of the richest kingdoms in Western Europe. Over the decades, they had enjoyed an unprecedented era of peace, which they'd used successfully to advance their economy. And thanks to the political and economic system that was placed on top of that prosperity, almost all of that wealth was being concentrated into the hands of a small aristocratic elite. And let's be honest here, that was pretty convenient for men like King Swain Forkbeard and Olaf Tryggvason. So they took their 94 ships and they set sail for England and they were bringing with them an army larger than anything that the region had seen for the last half century. And in no time at all, that fleet was sailing up the Thames. And on September 8th of 994, they arrived at the trading city of London. The records don't give us a detailed account of what happened next, but according to the Chronicle, King Swain and Olaf had expected a relatively easy raid. And why wouldn't they? England was in disarray, and it clearly lacked a fighting spirit. Over the last few years, they had repeatedly abandoned the field in the face of opposition. And even when they did put up a fight, they weren't able to do all that much damage, as the fleet at Northy Island had proved only a short while earlier. But something was different here. And I'm sure that the walls did help, but there was also something else. The citizens were standing their ground. Maybe they'd been pushed too far. Maybe they didn't have anywhere else to go. Maybe they were just too naive to realize how dangerous Swain and his army was. I don't know. Whatever it was though, the defense of London was fierce. And what little we're told of reminds me of the heroic defense of Paris against Rollo and his Viking hordes. We're told that as the battle for the city continued, Swain and his Vikings grew frustrated. And then their frustration with London turned to outrage and they decided they wanted to burn the city down. Despite the incredible numbers of the Viking fleet, they couldn't accomplish their goal. The Chronicle tells us that in their efforts, quote, they sustained more harm and evil than they ever supposed that any citizens could inflict upon them, end quote. The Vikings and their king had come to London seeking riches, and they found only death. Eventually, Realizing that there would be no profit found here, 
they broke off their attack. But that didn't mean they would go home. These Englishmen might be able to defend a city like London, but London was just one city. There were plenty other targets on the island. Targets that didn't have walls, nor the dense concentration of citizens and soldiers. So they turned their ships eastward, raiding the comparably smaller settlements along the coastlines of Essex. And they plundered, they killed any who stood against them, and they left burned husks of buildings in their wake. London might be safe, but nothing else was. And Forkbeard wasn't done yet. The estates and villages that they were raiding were living, breathing things. They were part of the food-based economy that the entire English state relied upon. And that meant that they had many of the things that you need to run a farm, including horses. So after raiding for a while, these Vikings didn't just have treasure and slaves. They also had enough horses to be able to mount up and quickly move inland, striking some of the richer and even more poorly defended settlements. With those horses, they were able to descend upon the hamlets and burrs before the inhabitants even knew what was happening. And Kent suffered greatly under these attacks. Then Sussex, then Hampshire. The southeast of England was burning, and we're told that this newly mounted army, quote, rode as widely as they wished and continued to do indescribable damage, end quote. And it appears that King Athelred and the English nobility were in no position to stop them. The nobility might be able to survive the attacks by hiding behind their walls, but by hiding, they were abandoning the rest of the kingdom to the mercies of Swain and Olaf. And mercy was in short supply in Fort Beard's army. It was a terrible situation and one that was so bad that it actually provided common ground between the king's chief counselor, Elderman Athelweird, the king's former chief counselor, Elderman Elfrich, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Sigurik. They all agreed that something needed to be done. And specifically, they all agreed that meeting Swain in the field of battle was not an option. They simply didn't have the military capacity to meet this army in a fight. But they did have money. So the most powerful religious figure in England, along with the most powerful counselor and the former most powerful counselor, sought King Athelred's permission to pay another Danegeld. And the king agreed. An offer of 16,000 pounds was made to King Swain, who agreed to the price. It was the second of Athelred's Danegelds, and Archbishop Sigurik had suggested both of them. With the bargain agreed upon, Swain's army marched to Southampton, where they established a winter quarters and ate and drank at the expense of the English while they waited for the payment to be gathered and delivered. And it must have taken quite some time, because while the Reeves and officers of the court were riding from Shire to Shire to collect payment, the man who orchestrated this Danegeld, Archbishop Sigurich of Canterbury, died, and a new archbishop was designated. Bishop Elfhea of Winchester, who would now be known as Archbishop Elfhea. You see, a Danegeld wasn't just a payment. It was a process. And it was a process that could take so long that bishops were literally dying of old age. But eventually, the payment was gathered. And once it was provided to King Swain, he and his army left England, as promised. 
But Swain wasn't the only Scandinavian leader in England. There was also Olaf. And at some point during these negotiations, perhaps even prior to the negotiations, the English court began to take a particular interest in Olaf and his men. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Olaf Tryggvason was from Norway. And while he was a vassal of Swain, his interests weren't truly aligned with his Danish overlord. Moreover, that Danegeld that the English were scrambling to arrange for Swain was for Swain, not Olaf and Swain. And beyond that, the English court might have sensed an opportunity in Olaf. You see, Olaf wasn't just some random Viking. He was a descendant of mighty King Harald Fairhair. And as such, he had ambitions larger than being the hired muscle for this ruthless son of Harald Bluetooth. Olaf wanted to be king. And so the new archbishop, Elfhea, as well as the king's chief counselor, Elderman Athelweird, invited Olaf to meet with a king. But Olaf wasn't an idiot. He knew to be cautious. I mean, what was to stop these Englishmen from capturing or killing him? So he demanded that they leave hostages with his ships to ensure his safety. Which they did. And only then did Olaf accompany the nobles to the designated meeting space at Andover. And there, he met with King Athelred. And the records tell us that he was received with a great deal of pomp. And the king showered Olaf with gifts and treated him as an honored guest. And it's thought that at this meeting, Olaf and Athelred agreed to a treaty. A treaty which would go down as one of the key diplomatic moments in King Athelred's reign. But there's a small caveat here. As important as this treaty was, there is some argument about when it actually happened. Some scholars believe that it was actually signed in 991, around the time of the Battle of Malden. However, a much more compelling case has been made by historian E.V. Gordon, who argues that this event happened in 994, due to the regions that were specified in the treaty and how those corresponded to the raiding of the army, along with some other important documentary evidence. And because of that, this is the place it gets in the timeline for the sake of the BHP. 994. Now this treaty is presented as an agreement with Olaf, Jostein, and Guthman's status son. And that's important, because Swain Forkbeard is nowhere to be seen in the document. Which is pretty suggestive. And it's possible that that happened because this was a deliberately separate agreement, perhaps as an effort to exploit a rift between the two Viking warlords. It might even be an indication that this was an agreement between Olaf and Athelred against Swain. I mean, such a thing wouldn't be out of the question given the Thunderdome-like nature of Scandinavian politics. And while we can't be 100% sure because of how sketchy our documents are, it really is suspicious. And that sense is made even more so by the fact that this wasn't just a treaty for peace. In fact, the document actually begins with texts about merchant relations between the English and Scandinavian settlements. So it wasn't just a request to lay off. Instead, it looks very much like two monarchs coming together to agree on terms for future relations between their kingdoms. Which would make a lot of sense if Athelred was looking to form an alliance with an ambitious Norse leader who was looking to break off from Danish control and reestablish his independence. And then the treaty moves from trade agreements to how to handle general disputes between their people. 
And it also includes an effort to stem future feuds by declaring that, quote, with respect to all the slaughter and all the harrying and all the injuries which were committed before the truce was established, all of them are to be dismissed and no one is to avenge it or ask for compensation, end quote. Which again, sounds very much like two monarchs coming to an agreement. Finally, Olaf Tryggvason agrees in the treaty that he will no longer make an enemy of the English. And traitors coming to England were to be given safe passage. And most importantly, Olaf agreed that he would join England in a fight against any other Viking host, and he would be hostile to any lands that harbored enemies of England, which almost certainly included Normandy. But that last clause really does change this document. This peace treaty wasn't just a peace treaty. Athelred was also hiring mercenaries. Now, of course, mercenaries don't work for free. And so Olaf was provided an enormous amount of money in exchange for this service. The exact amount, though, we're unsure of. There's a record of 22,000 pounds of gold and silver, but due to the murky language of the treaty, it's just as possible that Olaf was only paid 6,000 pounds of gold and silver, and that number was just added together with the other payment of 16,000 pounds that was paid to Swain. It's genuinely hard to know either way. But for some very large amount of money, Olaf was now working for Athelred. And under normal circumstances, a deal like this would have been sealed with a baptism, among other things. But Olaf had already been baptized. And that was actually a bit of a problem, because baptism was an important part of the medieval diplomatic dance with the Vikings up to this point. So in lieu of a full-on baptism, Olaf instead was confirmed, and King Athelred stood as a sponsor. But Athelred and his council weren't fools. Christian rituals were great and all, but the Vikings had made it quite clear that you could break these agreements, and you'd only suffer the spiritual consequences of that after your death. And that wasn't all that helpful for a temporal institution like a kingdom. So it was probably best to make sure that there would also be some more immediate and earthly consequences for breaking this treaty. So Athelred demanded that Olaf secure the deal with hostages. Highborn hostages. Hostages that would suffer greatly if Olaf went back on his word. And according to William of Malmesbury, one of those hostages was a woman named Gunhild, the sister of King Swain Forkbeard. And she was accompanied by her husband, a highborn Scandinavian captain named Palag. Now, one thing to note here is that our sole account of Gunhild comes from William of Malmesbury. So it's possible that she didn't exist. But on the other hand, Palag appears all over the record. He definitely existed. In fact, Athelred seems to have taken a shine to him and paid him a great deal of money and provided him with estates, possibly in Devon, in exchange for his service as a mercenary captain for the crown. So if Palig existed, maybe so did Gunhild. And if that's the case, it actually provides an awkward little side story to this tale. You see, Gunhild and Swain were both the children of the former king of Denmark, Harold Bluetooth. And Gunhild, like her father, had converted to Christianity, a fact that had not sat all that well with some of the most important figures in the Danish halls of power. In particular, Gunhild's brother, Swain Forkbeard, had taken this conversion right on the chin, or on the beard. It had actually upset him so much that he led a war against his father, deposed him, and that's how he ended up with King Swain Forkbeard in his place. Needless to say, 
Christmases would have been pretty awkward in that family. Or they would have been if Swain ever came to Christmas dinner, which he wouldn't have, obviously. And then, if you take into account the frenemy situation between Olaf and Swain, which sits at the center of this entire invasion, along with this all-too-fresh wound that was likely sitting at the heart of Forkbeard's dynasty due to how he acquired his throne, well, suddenly, it makes a lot of sense that his Christian sister might have been accompanying Olaf rather than Swain, and that she might have been just fine with this impending civil war. And that she was likely all too happy to stay in this Christian kingdom of the English. Like I said, this story of Gunhild might all be an invention of Malmesbury, but the event sure seemed to line up in a way that makes sense. However, with the confirmation completed and the hostages exchanged and the payment provided, the agreement between Olaf and Athelred was sealed. And Olaf returned to Scandinavia, where he was determined to fight for the throne of Norway. And here's the most fascinating and unlikely thing about Athelred's treaty with Olaf. It was actually a pretty good idea. I mean, let's imagine that this agreement was arranged while Swain was still raiding in England, or just dragging his feet on the arrangement, which very well may have been the case. Well, in that situation, by facilitating the launch of Olaf's coup, the crown had put King Swain Forkbeard in a situation where he'd either have to rush home and abandon his English campaign, or he might lose Norway, and perhaps even Denmark. And even if Olaf's agreement was struck after the agreement with Swain Forkbeard, even then, Olaf's war for independence would ensure that he and Swain would be locked in a civil war. And civil wars often take a long time, and sap a kingdom of its resources. And that would actually give England the breathing room it needed to prepare its defenses. See what I mean? This agreement with Olaf was a genuinely shrewd political maneuver. And this court hadn't exactly been known for making shrewd political maneuvers. But that was when the court was led by the previous council, with Bishop Sigurich and Elderman Elfrich. And while Elderman Athweird and his family, along with Wolfrich Spot and his family, and the Dowager Queen Elfrith and her family appeared to have been just as self-interested as Elfrich and his faction, well, at least they were competent. So, England might have been breathing a sigh of relief right about now. Because Mom was back. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also sign up for membership or join any of our communities by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Mother, tell your children not to walk my way.